Vamos. Welcome back to Ghostbusters Minute. Ghostbusters Minute is the fan podcast that chronicles and overanalyzes the classic 1984 film Ghostbusters Minute by Minute. I'm Kyle. I'm Brady. And tonight we are joined by two very special guests. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and welcome Scott and Nick from Back to the Future Minute. Gentlemen, how are you this evening? Very good. Thank you doing, for having us. Doing very well. Thank you so much for coming on. Now, we did an episode of your show recently. We figured it was only fair to have you guys on, uh, because, and also because we had such a fantastic time doing your, your podcast. Um, can, can you guys real quick just kind of give us a background on who you are and what uh, Back to the Future's Minute is? Uh, yeah, so uh, it basically it started as, uh, you know, we were listeners of Star Wars Minute, and I loved the format, and when Goodfellas Minute started... Uh, or was announced that they were doing it, I realized that Star Wars Minute was fine with other people using the format, so I asked permission to use it immediately. And then within, I think, a 48 hours, I had asked Nick to do it with me. We had gotten the website up and gotten artwork for the, for the podcast and started recording, and I think we were out the door with, like, episodes within two weeks of me making the decision to do it. Wow. Because um, we, we, I was just really excited because I was obsessed with their format, and I was like, man, this is such a good idea, and I wish I could steal it. Uh, and then they started letting people steal it, which is nice. So, Nick, when Scott contacted you and said, hey, I have this idea, what was it, what was it that sealed the deal for you? Um, just kind of how 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 enthusiastic he was about it. Uh, y you know, we we sort of have a habit of uh, of kind of uh, shooting things back and forth. Uh, and the, this was just there was just so much momentum going that I I kind of just trusted that. And uh, you know, sometimes the best thing you can do with a project is just not think about it too much and just just do it. Oh yeah. And and passion is addictive too. When you have somebody that has you know a great idea and they want to run with it, it's very easy to get caught up in what they're doing. And in the case of Back to the Future Minute, it's worked out splendidly. So you guys, right now, you're covering Back to the Future too, correct? Uh, yeah. When when does this come out? Uh, this comes out uh, actually a week from today that we're recording it. So okay, so so we will be in our last uh, full movie week of part two. Um. We we uh, we only have um, next. I think next week will be is like half credits, uh, and then another full week of credits, and then we're done. Uh, yes, and the credits are the most interesting part of the movie, huh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, so you guys have already done Back to the Future. Back to the Future Two is wrapping up now, and I'm assuming that you're just going to roll right on Back to the Future Three, or will you take a break you know, between? Weirdly, oh. we're just not going to do it. <laughs> no, no, we are gonna take a break. Uh, we were we didn't take a break uh, with the first one because we asked our listeners who were all like, "Oh, I can't believe you're gonna be gone!" Like, you know, and I came up with this stupid idea of being like, "Hey, tell you what, guys, we only have 18 iTunes reviews. If you can get us up to 50, we'll come back." We went up to 50 in two weeks. Wow! Oh, wow! <laughs> and it's nice so, to know you're loved. Yeah, so it was it was nice. It was really awesome that they came together like that and pulled it off. But uh, it meant we had to come back way sooner than we had thought we were going to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and and you know Scott and I, are, but mostly Scott, uh, have uh, you know we're 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 currently also uh, executive producing and show running 
um, a fully produced, casted audio series. Oh, wow. And, and called Geek by Night with, like, actors and sound effects and really? scripts and editing. And uh, doing those consecutive, you know, doing those at the same time, it's it it it's it's very it's it's, it's kind of pushed us to our limit, and um, for Scott's mental and physical health, I think we actually are going to <laughs> put, put the podcast it's on. It's so our... true. I'm laughing so I don't cry. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so we are going to put it on a on a finite hiatus. Like we know exactly how long it's going to be. We know exactly when we want part three to come out, but it it is going to be a a, a longer break. Than the gap yeah, absolutely. Well, look, let me ask you: What, what are y'all's uh, first memories of Ghostbusters, or how did y'all come across Ghostbusters? Go ahead, Nick. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I was getting used to the, that. So, um, my literal first memory of Ghostbusters is I was at my friend Juan's house in Arlington, Texas, in like ninety. Four ninety-five, maybe, and uh, it it actually wasn't Ghostbusters. It was the courtroom scene in Ghostbusters Two. Ah, yes, the Scalari brothers. Yes, yeah, and I, I I I don't know if I had like a peripheral like by proxy knowledge, but I just just remembered that scene and being like, oh my god, this is amazing! It's funny and exciting. That that's that's crazy. I didn't know you could do that. And then um. I, I I since have been you know watching the first two a lot and I I have a I hold uh, I hold especially the first one in like very high regard I actually think it's one of the best examples of like comedy and um and action and adventure and horror and I think it's just kind of a, a miracle of a movie and uh, just the I it, it it's simultaneously an adventure movie and a hangout movie. Which I, I don't think has ever been really replicated, uh, even in the case of the franchise itself. Uh, so yeah, I I I love Ghostbusters. I Scott and I reference it at least every project that we do. Inevitably, Ghostbusters will come up, uh, and so yeah, it, it it's imprinted onto my DNA. Yeah, that's a really cool point. A uh, adventure film and hangout film. I've never thought of it like that, and that, that works completely. That's awesome. Uh, for me, I don't remember a time when Ghostbusters wasn't uh, in my life. Like I, I don't remember, I, I, I don't remember the first time that I ever watched it um, specifically. But I do remember that the opening scene in the uh, in the library. To this day, the sound of the cards flying out of the card catalog gives me goosebumps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it's such a very – it's a very specific sound that I don't think I've ever heard replicated anywhere in anything for any reason, you know? Uh, and so when I hear that sound, I specifically think of Ghostbusters. But, you know, when I was a kid, I watched the cartoon. I loved the cartoon series. Uh, I even watched every episode of Extreme Ghostbusters in the in the 90s. Oh, wow. I haven't uh, even seen one episode of that. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, and I, I loved Extreme Ghostbusters, and it was – I mean, Extreme Ghostbusters was uh, – Everything that you that I had always hoped that a sequel to Ghostbusters would be a third sequel, um, which was you know new recruits, kind of like passing the baton down to a new generation kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I I, I loved uh, Extreme Ghostbusters uh, despite the ridiculous name. Um, but it was the nineties. 
Right. Yeah, everything, everything was extreme. Was... <laughs> uh, but uh, Extreme Ghostbusters brought to you by Surge. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I, so I just Ghostbusters meant the world to me. I mean, when I was a kid, I had every toy, uh, all of the ghosts that you would like squeeze their legs together, and they would go from like a regular football player to like a crazy monster thing, you know. Um, I had all of those. I had the, I had the firehouse. I had the uh, the proton pack and and the ghost trap. I had everything um, that you could possibly have of Ghostbusters. It's one of the. It was like that and Ninja Turtles were the two things I had the most of uh, growing up in the '80s. Um, I just I loved Ghostbusters, and I think Ghostbusters is responsible for uh, my interest in mixing genre. Uh, because, you know, all of my favorite movies, they mix genre in one way or another. They're either sci-fi and comedy or sci-fi and romance or horror and comedy or a mixture of horror and sci-fi and comedy. Like, everything is a mixture of genres, and that is directly because of uh, Ghostbusters. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah, Scott, it's, uh, it's interesting that you say that that sound of the cards flying up out of the card catalog just kind of brings Ghostbusters back to you. It's it's um, it's um, little bits of nostalgia like that. I guess it's trace memories or something that just sort of, yeah, they, they recall things. Uh, some people have like a smell that they can get, and it just brings them back to somewhere they would have been, you know, or an experience they had like in their childhood. And so mm-hmm. that's, that stuff like that's always fascinated me, and I think it's cool that one of those memories for you is the sound of the cards flying up out of the card catalog, and it reminds you of Ghostbusters. It's just, you know, it's, so you had that experience when you were a kid, and it stuck with you just like that, mm-hmm. Some, somewhere in the back of your brain. That's, uh, that's fascinating that this movie can do that for you. Absolutely, yeah. This movie, this movie means a lot to me. I mean, ultimately, I mean, Back to the Future, my favorite movie of all time, so that's why we ultimately did it. But I did, for a good half a second, <laughs> we did think... Do we want to do Back to the Future or do we want to do Ghostbusters? That was that was an initial conversation, and then it just we realized well, the sequels to Back to the Future are more interesting than the sequel to Ghostbusters. At least yeah, that's at the least, truth. Yeah. At least from a minute at a time, because I will say there are a lot of really iconic stuff. I mean, Vigo's iconic. Yes, oh yeah. yeah, and uh, you and know, like you know the, the the Statue of Liberty and like you know the your love keeps lifting me higher. <laughs> yeah. it's such Yano. a fish pump, yeah. right? Well, but, we uh, we're really happy when you guys asked us on your show, and really happy to have you on this one because these movies are they they do share a lot of similarities in like tone and kind of playfulness and in the fun mm-hmm. nature of them, but they're very different in for in terms of craft. Back to yes. the Future is a movie that is meticulously planned. I think I've read or maybe heard Dan Harmon say that like it took him seven years to write the screenplay mm-hmm. uh, for Back to the Future, and you can see it. It's There's so much attention to detail there on the screen, whereas Ghostbusters feels a little bit more improv. Maybe the cameras were set up, and they just kind of, hey, guys, just riff on these ideas or these characters. It seems like there's a lot of just uh, uh, dialogue that was made up on the spot. So it's really cool to have a contrast in terms of uh, films uh, for, for having you guys on here. So... Um, and thanks again for coming on. So <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, well if you guys are ready, the, yeah, yeah, let's go ahead and get into the minutes. This is going to be minute number thirty-six. Now, in the previous minute, of the Ghostbusters had followed Slimer into the ballroom and blasted a chandelier down from the ceiling. Egon has just informed Vankman and Ray of the importance of not crossing the streams. At minute thirty-six, Vankman thanks Egon for the safety tip about keeping the streams uncrossed. At thirty-six oh five, Vankman directs Egon and Ray into position 
to make another attempt at capturing Slimer. Slimer can be heard off-screen snarling. At 36.13, Slimer is seen drinking a bottle of wine that passes straight through him and spills all over the tablecloth below. At 36.17, Slimer is startled by the Ghostbusters as Peter tells Ray to give him a proton blast high and outside. Ray throws a particle beam across the buffet table, sending Slimer spinning off into the ballroom. Ray's particle beam decimates the buffet table. At 36.22, Venkman yells for Egon to throw his beam at Slimer. Egon lights up and ignites all of the remaining food on the buffet table into a sugary fireball. Egon's beam sends Slimer spinning out of control and over the ballroom bar. At 36.25, Egon hits the ballroom bar with another particle blast and blows it apart. Slimer flies up to the ceiling in a panting fit. At 36.32, Vinkman gets Egon to calm down by telling him, Hey, 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 nice shooting, Tex. At 36.39, we hard cut to the hotel manager speaking to a woman named Miss Van Hoffman, whom he is assuring that there is nothing wrong with the ballroom and will be ready shortly. At 36.43, we cut back to the ballroom, which is on fire and covered in blown-apart pastry. At 36.47, Ray tells Vinkman and Egon that the last throw has slowed down Slimer, and that he needs room to put down the trap. Egon and Venkman pick up a table and toss it aside. At 36.49, we cut again to outside where the hotel manager and Miss Hoffman are talking. A group of Japanese businessmen are startled by the sounds of chaos inside the ballroom. At 36.53, the hotel manager goes to check the ballroom doors and whispers something to an attendant. The muffled sound of glass breaking can be heard coming from inside the ballroom. At 36.56, we cut back into the ballroom where the Ghostbusters have cleared out a large space for Ray to deploy his ghost trap. Slimer is floating near the ceiling and appears to be out of breath. And thus ends minute number 36 of Ghostbusters. So I'm not really sure how a ghost can run out of breath, but it seems that Slimer gets winded very easily, <laughs> whether it be flying through a wall and staring down Egon, I mean, uh, staring down Venkman or <laughs> flying around the It would be Slimer, room. though. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, we just saw him eating all of this food off of a... Uh, like a um, room service tray in a previous minute, and he's just a total glutton. And now he's just been drinking wine and eating cake. So, <laughs> have you heard the, uh, the? There's a bit of trivia that uh, I can't remember if this is Harold Ramis or Ivan Reitman or Aykroyd. I can't remember who specifically said this, but it was always kind of like an inside joke between the filmmakers that that Slimer sort of represented the ghost of John Belushi. Yeah, I, I, I've heard stories that Ray um, – excuse me, Ray, I'm calling him Ray <laughs> – that Dan Aykroyd would go around the set and make that joke. Originally in the script, Slimer's name was Onion Head uh, because he produced a foul smell, and that's kind of how he scared people is he just stank so bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if that was his inside joke about how bad John Belushi smelled in real life, but uh, it's funny because John Belushi you know, originally was supposed to be the character of Venkman uh, when uh, Dan Aykroyd was – pitching the idea for the for the script and while he was writing the first draft of the script I don't know if it was he when he was about to finish or when he had just completed his first draft and was going to turn it into the studio uh, he got word that John Belushi had died so um, it, it's really it's funny that he would be that he would joke about it so much because it seems like they were really good friends in real life but I like you know if uh, if I was working on a movie and had a friend that died I don't know that I could go around saying like oh yeah this guy over here he's the ghost of uh well, they're they're comedians. They, yeah. they live very different lives from you and I. <laughs> yeah, that, this is a good point. Yeah, <laughs> there's this uh, there's this le- there's this story that I, I love, but uh, this is kind of a but it was um it was after the 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 wake of Phil Hartman. Uh, they, they had just gotten done burying Phil Hartman, and it was Mike Myers, John Lovitz, and uh, like two other guys, like David Spade maybe, and they were just kind of sitting around uh, a circle at like the house that the wake was at. And Mike Myers was just completely devastated, and he kept saying, like, 
I can't believe Phil Hartman is dead. I can't believe Phil's. I can't believe Phil Hartman. Phil Hartman was killed by a gun. I I can't believe that <laughs> Phil Hartman, John Lovitz, who was without a doubt Phil Hartman's best friend and best collaborator and one of the closest people in his life, said, "Oh, please, you're making it sound worse than it was." <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, well, one thing I was noticing when I went back and watched the scene is there is a lot of great um, proton pack acting in these scenes. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is one of those situations where I'm sure that they had to ask themselves, like, how do these things behave? You know, when we flip them on, is it like a laser that we're shooting at something, or is it like a fishing line that we're trying to to hold on to, and it kind of reminded me of uh, when they were shooting the original Star Wars A New Hope, they had decided that lightsabers were controlled like broadswords. And then once they saw the movie and decided that, okay, that's, you know, seeing Obi-Wan and Darth Vader fight each other in the hallway of the Death Star is a little bit boring, they switched it over to more like katanas for Empire Strikes Back, and that's why the fight between Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader is a little bit more fluid. So, mm -hmm. uh, Brady, did you notice anything about uh, about the proton pack ghost wrangling that stuck out to you? Or? Really, just Egon's expression after, you know, he's been told to stop. He's got this just amazed and proud look on his face. It's really funny. But um, outside of the uh, proton pack stuff, one thing I found interesting about this minute was that our lead character is the guy who is serving as the sort of info dump uh, person. Most of the time, whenever... The audience needs something explained for them. There's this one character in the group uh, who will say, like, so what you're saying is, is this, that, and, you know, kind of breaks it down for the audience. And, mm -hmm. it's, and it's, it's normally, like, kind of a side or maybe throwaway character. And in this case, it's your lead character who's like, okay, I'm fuzzy on the whole good-bad thing. And so Egon has to explain to him what will, you know, what we're, we're as the audience, being told is, you know, the resolution of this movie, uh, the total protonic reversal. And he's having that explained to him, you know, to, to the lead character of the movie. You never see that. You very rarely see that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that, that kind of discussion was, was in the previous minute, but the, the part where Fayer uh, thanks Egon is, is right there at the very beginning. But there is it, – it's funny because this whole scene is kind of like a comedic – it's got a lot of um, – Oh, kind of like broad, uh, you know, like just just the, the the visual of Egon trying to wrangle in the ghost and just like not being able to control the particle beam is uh, is it's it's a lot of slapstick almost, you know, a lot of broad like physical humor. But it happens right after this dire moment where the entire stakes of the movie and the end of the movie are kind of given out there to the audience to you know see what happens later in it. Uh, so it's it's very strange as far as like pacing goes, but yeah. something else yeah. I noticed uh, that you probably wouldn't see this kind of attention to detail in many movies is the fact that Peter's still covered in slime, and uh, I think there's some movies like oh I can't I can't think of any examples where someone has fallen into water and then you know they go around a corner and suddenly they're dry because yeah. there's just no one really cares about that consistency. But uh, so I thought that was interesting. Yeah, the uh, the I, I'm I'm always really impressed by the uh, the the proton beams because I I it's so unique looking I I don't know I don't know how because it's almost like um it actually reminds me a little bit of a like a thicker version of the of the lightning that comes out of uh, the emperor's hands you know yeah I can see yeah. that mm -hmm. um it's it's so it's just it's a really unique sort of laser beam and. Just the idea that they they have they have to have these things that they wrangle the ghost with 
that they then pull into the trap is just such a weird idea. Like, I don't even know... I mean, I mean, outside of just the fact of I don't know how, you know, whose ever idea that was, I don't know if that was specifically uh, Dan Aykroyd or Harold Ramis or Ivan Reitman, um, but beyond just the behind-the-scenes idea, who whose idea was it to catch ghosts like that, it, like, <laughs> in, on the team? Like, it's such a, a weird thing. And then they've never had a proper field test, so... They didn't even know this was going to work. Yeah, it's like, here's this incredibly, potentially dangerous thing. Let's do it. That's not a question. <laughs> Let's just go with it. Not even yeah. potentially dangerous, because I'm pretty sure if a human being was anywhere yeah. near those beams, I mean, you would just get sliced in half. It's, it's, that's, yeah. that's rough. So what, one interesting comparison about this and Back to the Future is that we're both seeing, you know, like nuclear level uh, mm -hmm. uh, experimentations done for the first time with the Ghostbusters with the proton packs, Doc Brown pulling out the time machine and not really knowing, like, hey, is this going to work or is this going to, uh, you know, kill Einstein the dog and blow up the uh, Twin Pines Mall right here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's the, uh, the the design of the of the proton packs and the and the trap. There's so many similarities between this and Back to the Future where it just – it feels like somebody made these things in their garage. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, and I think it's – I think that's what fans like us – that's why we love these things so much is that it feels like something we can make. And so it doesn't feel like, well, we can never do that. Um, you know, like you, you look at – uh, like Lord of the Rings fans or something like that, and it's like, yeah, you can get, you guys can go and and LARP or whatever that you're gonna do, and you can dress up like them, but you're never gonna have magic. Trolls aren't gonna be real, but you can have a proton pack. Like it's not gonna work, but it can look like one. You know, mm -hmm. it it just feels like a thing that's part of our reality, yeah, which I, I think I, is really yeah, cool. I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And I like that they both use, you know, uh, existing automobiles that are kind of like souped up mm -hmm. to, you know, because that definitely gives it a real-world feeling as well. The so, you know, DeLorean and the, uh, you know, Ecto-1. Yeah, I mean, two of the most iconic cars in movie history were a year apart in movie theaters. Yeah. True, yeah. You know, I, I, did, I, I don't know if I mentioned this when we were on your podcast or not either, but, you know, even the theme song of Ghostbusters is a ripoff of uh, Power Lewis. of Love. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. What's, was it was it Power Lover back in time that it was? A it's uh, I need a new drug, right? Yeah, it's I need a new drug. Oh, that's it. Okay, yeah. Well, tangentially related, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah. So uh, Mrs. Van Hoffman, I got yeah. a little info on her. It's played by Katherine Jansen, who was actually in a couple of like pretty big movies, uh, but she was always in supporting roles or stuff that was just incredibly minor, like this. She was in The Towering Inferno, The Poseidon Adventure, Hello Dolly, and Valley of the Dolls, and just about all of those are. You know, the, the Towering Inferno, she's listed as party guest, and that's about the most substantial uh, title she gets as any of those parts. But um, she actually uh, wasn't in any of the scripts. She was just kind of thrown in there at the last minute. I believe the guy at the elevator, too, with the cigar, was uh, the same the same case. They just sort of plucked him out and said, hey, you're here, do this. 
One thing I love about her and I love about the hotel manager is they are such absolute uh, 1980s comedy archetypes. You know, oh, yeah. like the stiff, rich person, just the name. Like, she's just Miss Van Hoffman, you know, and you could see her, like, you know, getting all worked up about her midnight buffet, you know, that she's throwing <laughs> for the side theater company. And she's just, I get, she doesn't have any lines, and it's such a shame because, you know, she'd be like, my word, or something like that. Yeah. But, and then the hotel manager is just, you know, uh, Michael Inson plays it so well. It's just kind of the, you know, middle level trying to appease the, you know, the rich person. And then I love that he runs off and he tells the, you know, the attendant there at the door, he just kind of whispers something to him. And the guy just, like, takes off. You don't need to hear what he said, but you know that he's it's probably something like, you know, I, you have to do this. You know, like, I can imagine in my mind that they're one of those hotel situations where, like, if there's a big ball or something like that, like everybody's on pins and needles, you know, beforehand, it's like a military operation to get the whole thing going. But it's funny because Miss um, Van Hoffman has a name. The guy, the uh, attendant that he whispers to is actually named Donald, but the hotel manager never has a name. In his <laughs> really? He's just always hotel manager, yeah. And it's funny because I, I tried to look – I looked up and down. I couldn't find any information on the guy that played Donald. Uh Huh. But, uh, he, he yeah. almost busts his ass there when he starts running off. Too. He slips on the uh, the floor. Yeah. But, uh, all right, uh, look, the, the last few minutes, we've been trying to figure out what the hell a midnight buffet is. And I'm sure it's something so – like everyone else in the world knows and we just don't know. And do you guys have any idea what that is? I have never heard of that, no. <laughs> all right, well – the, the closest we can find is it used to be something that happened on cruise ships, maybe like in the 60s or 70s, is they would just have something called a midnight buffet. We don't know if it was food that was about to go bad, that they would just make an announcement like, hey, at midnight, if you want to come down, we're going to have all this food together. But yeah. it's mm. apparently some sort of like long-gone tradition that is very poorly documented. But uh, Interesting. The, uh, the, the hotel manager, uh, he's always – when I was a kid, I thought he was the same person, but obviously – not, um, but he reminds me of uh, the the snooty uh, guy in uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the, the sausage oh, king, yeah. Chicago. Yeah. Like yeah. that guy. <laughs> he's, he's just one of those guys you saw in '80s movies all the time. Like that oh, yeah. character, you know? Right. <laughs> um, yeah, he's uh, he's great in this. He's great, great casting. That's one trope that I just wish would come back and never leave. Like I always love a situation where there's just like some. You know, ne'er do well like scamps having to like go up against like the elite rich people. Did you guys say uh, a few weeks ago that Slimer was conceived as like a like a phlegm monster, like a phlegm ghost? Kind of. We had we had said that he there's okay so the Tobin Spirit Guide which has just been released like the commercial version for people the, um, there's some notes in there about Slimer being conjured into the Sedgwick Hotel by the cult of Gozer that used to hold their um, meetings there on the 12th floor, and that he is a uh, entity that's supposed to punish the conjurer by never being able to be full. So this kind of spirit would go around and uh, eat just nonstop. And it's based on – well, actually, I don't think it's based on it, but there is – in Chinese mytho like ghost mythology, there is something called a hungry ghost, and that kind of ghost can never be filled. It's one that maybe hasn't been buried or the ancestors uh, – its ancestors – excuse me, no, its family did not pay it proper respect. And mm -hmm. because of that, it would go into a house and eat all the food. But to your point about the phlegm ghost, I, 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 I've never actually heard that. Have you heard something about that? Well, because you, you talked about uh, that – Deleted scene or whatever, where the guy like kind of oh. like coughed him up out of his, out of I his see. body yeah. or something, right? Yeah, I guess it was a sound effect was written in um, 
uh, as the sound of one cat coughing and two cats coughing, and then it would go on after that. So if if the if the implication there is that the the man of the honeymooners coughed Slimer up, that would make total sense. I could I could totally get that. Very very yeah. exorcist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're right. that is absolutely disgusting. Yeah, so. and yeah, I could see Slimer being sentient snot. I mean, that's very well <laughs> it could be. Yeah, the the hunger the the hunger ghost is interesting because that reminds me. Um, there's a one of the early uh, famous arcs in uh, one of the most well known arcs in Hellblazer uh, is uh, this story about um, John Constantine's uh, like best friend or like ex friend or whatever that he gets possessed by a hunger demon and. It can't be satiated and is infecting all these other people, um, and it's a really, really, really famous like it's it's the one that put like Hellblazer on the map, um, uh, because it ends with uh, him making his friend kill himself. Um, <laughs> but wow. uh, yeah, yeah, because it's the only way to get rid of the the demon. Um, but uh, it's yeah, so that just reminds me of that. So I, I imagine they the probably pulled their mythology of that demon from a similar place of. Uh, as a Tobin spirit guide. Yeah, knowing the the links that Dan Aykroyd went to to write this screenplay, as far as like delving into the I'm using air quotes here, like science side of everything, and then his his you know f- f- familial knowledge of ghosts and lore and stuff like that, I'm sure that uh, if he didn't do it directly, I'm sure that he was aware of the the hungry ghost uh, mythology at some point, because I think like his father or grandfather was like a spiritualist, mm-hmm. uh, and that's kind of where where it came from. So, yeah, his father was a medium and. They used to perform uh, seances as a family, and he was convinced that his childhood home was haunted. Huh. Wow. So. <clears throat> Crazy. All right, guys. Well, y'all got anything else for this minute? Uh, no, no, I don't. No? Scott, Nick, anything else? I don't. Yeah, just looking into, you know, watching this, just this, this one minute of film is just so, I mean, it just, it makes me giddy, because it, it um, you know, I... Uh, even before I was a really a writer, I uh, I'm a pretty devout uh, improviser, and um, I, I I just I love improv comedy. I love improv performance. And growing up as a kid, you know, you um, I grew up sort of mythologist, you know, studying the, the the life and history of you know Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi and Harold Ramis and Bill Murray and you know so many others. Uh, and uh, watching this movie. I'm constantly, as a writer, at war with my my appreciation for structure and my love of like ramshackle, shaggy chaos. Yeah, and it's it's so interesting that Ghostbusters has sort of been adopted by the geeks because I think it was made by the freaks. And you you know we we you know the 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 I think the reason that capturing the ghosts with a a lasso is so weird is because it was made by a, a bunch of weirdos that were like not the you know they were kind of like the beer drinking pot smoking Chicago hangout guys you know and it it, it it's sort of frustrating it, not frustrating but it's interesting seeing what Ghostbusters has become in pop culture and it, it, it you, you 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 forget until you sit down and actually watch the movie that it is just kind of four friends hanging out yeah. And I, yeah. I think the reason that the movie is so irreplaceable, I mean, like, if you sit down, if you go to, if you're lucky enough to go to Chicago or, or L.A. And, and, and sit down at a at a Second City show or an I.O. show, the, the worst kinds of scenes 
are like joke, 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 joke. But the best like heart, like, you know, rib aching funny scenes are when it's like two or three friends that have been performing together for sometimes a decade and they're just they're just they're just having fun. And the humor comes out of that honesty and that vulnerability. And like in little moments like, oh important safety tip, thanks Egon. Or like, oh whoa, nice shooting text. Like it's the reason those moments are so beautiful and perfect are because it's so clearly just Bill Murray just kind of messing with Harold Ramis. Yeah. And yeah. that that and it it's so interesting that we you know, so many films, including, you know, movies that Scott and I have worked on, try so hard and just bend it and try, God, we gotta make it perfect. When the, the the kind of key to Ghostbusters is you not you don't really get the sense that anyone is really trying that hard. Right. It, 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 it's a work of pure joy and honestly, you know, very you know, kind of kudos to whoever edited this thing. But uh, it, it, you know, it, it it's it's that mixture that ba- almost kind of like Avatar like balance of the kind of improv-y, Seth Rogen-y kind of, you know, Linorama comedy versus the sort of hyper-structured, edited Edgar Wright comedy. And it, yeah, and, and, and maybe the, you know, the remake that just came out that I, I enjoyed, and then there were also parts that I was like, oh, well, and I think the, I think the, the you can kind of see how the effort, you know, and, uh, so yeah, just just it, it's a real miracle of a movie, and uh, for different reasons that I think a lot of people give it credit for. That's yeah. a great point that you bring that up, and it's it's kind of funny that the 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 miracle of it is at odds with its own design. We went uh, last or a couple weeks ago, and we had Mark Landry on, who's a screenwriter. One of the things he wanted to talk about was how Ghostbusters is studied uh, as far as its structure goes. That it's almost a perfect kind of like uh, archetype, or excuse me, architecture for how to write a screenplay. You know. It, Page uh, 30 comes the end of the first act, and then you're into the second act, and you know we get to see Peter's goal going forward, and then we go into the you know the Gozer threat and all that stuff. But then the scenes in between, like you're saying, are almost like improv, like a group of, group of friends that have their own internal language, and we're almost just feeding off of that energy that they're bringing forward, which is uh, a very difficult thing to capture if you just put four you know like hired actors. In a scene, as opposed to get like you know Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, Harold Ramis guys who are buddies who work together, just turn the camera on, you know they're yeah. <laughs> they're 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 going to make it great. And you know when you have a guy like Robert Zemeckis involved, he knows how to tailor that situation to fit uh, an actual like production <laughs> schedule. So. And kind of, in my opinion, the closest thing to the Ghostbusters that we have right now, I, in my opinion, is almost something like Broad City, where like hell you know, yeah. That's yeah, yeah, because <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, like the, there are scenes that are like plot heavy, but then the most magical moments are when it's clearly just Abby, Abby and Alana making each other laugh. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, look, I got a question for you then. Where? Because that's a lot of what the second film is. Ghostbusters Two is a lot of just the interpersonal, uh, you know, scenes with with the guys with the Ghostbusters, and yet the film kind of falls short for in a lot of places anyway. So, um, whereas I do definitely agree that that's, you know, part of why this film works so well, there's just something not there in the second one, and yet it had all these important elements that we're, that we're listing here. I really I, think it's the balance. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, I think it's the repetition. I think that uh, making them, starting the movie in the same place that the first one starts was the big mistake of the sequel. Mm-hmm. So instead of making a sequel, they made, like, a bad remake. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's the problem with that one is there's not enough new ideas. I'm all for all of the all of the interpersonal stuff. That's my favorite parts of that movie. Yeah. Uh, the problem is that I don't want to see Vankman hosting a uh, hosting a cable TV show. I do, I don't want to see uh, Ray and Winston working birthday parties. Like it just it's well, not. Yeah. And, and these it's are the heroes of... that save New York. And within four years, like you guys just like drop them. And that whole movie, the first movie is all about how great New York is, and the second one kind of about how much New York sucks sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, and and the sort of. And and also it, it sort of was remade a third time the, the, this this past summer. Right. And yeah. I I and I think what what we've all been really hungry for is just like a new adventure. And I think that's why Scott you know had remembers the the cartoon so fondly is because it actually covers new ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the the IDW comic is incredible for that same reason. Yeah, that's that's one that we're actually I think one of our uh, Patreon episodes we might do a review of the comic because I sadly. My comic reading has gone down as of late, and uh, yeah, it's (laughs) hard to get caught up sometimes. I'm still reading like old Moon Knight issues around here somewhere, trying to get caught up to the late '90s on him. But, um, (laughs) but yeah, so but we've heard so much good stuff about the uh, the IDW Ghostbusters comic, and I know that IDW puts out some fantastic stuff uh, with a, a few other licenses that they have. So I think we're gonna. We're going to review that one, but I mean, you bringing it up now just further, you know, seals the deal on that one. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's all I got. If uh, if you guys have anything else, no, yeah, yeah. No, just, just real quick, if you could tell us uh, b- before we end the show here, uh, where can people find uh, Back to the Future Minute? Where can they find Geek by Night? Where can they find more Scott and Nick stuff? Uh, all of that is at our website, DuelingGenre.com. Uh, Dueling Genre Productions being our production company that we uh, made the short films that I talked about. Um, and all of our podcasts are under the uh, Dueling Genre umbrella. So DuelingGenre.com, you can find our podcasts, my short films, you can find Geek by Night, everything is uh, is there. Links to our Twitters. Mm-hmm. Awesome. If you guys don't mind, we're probably going to put out a lot of that, uh, link to a lot of that stuff on uh, on uh, our Facebook. So Definitely do not mind. Yeah. <laughs> okay, fine, yeah. I got the <laughs> assist from your lawyers, I understand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, great. All right, well, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for, to Scott and Nick from Back to the Future Minute and RulingGenre.com for joining us. Uh, Brady, thank you for you as well. I know you have a very hectic schedule. I know you need to get back to the office, so uh, I'll talk to you later. Sounds but uh, <laughs> All right, everybody, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, for Scott, for Nick, for Brady, I'm Kyle. We're here to remind you that death is but a door, time a window. We'll be back. Ghostbusters Minute is a fan-supported podcast. To become a patron of Ghostbusters Minute and gain access to exclusive weekly bonus content, visit us at patreon.com slash gbminute. If you like the podcast, then leave us a review on iTunes. You can contact us at ghostbustersminute at gmail.com and visit us online at ghostbustersminute.com, facebook.com slash ghostbustersminute, twitter.com slash gbminute, and look us up on Instagram at ghostbustersminute. Our theme song is Ectoplasm by Audionautics, which is licensed under the Creative Commons Attributions License. Thank you.